0: Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McAvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt.
1: Welcome, listeners and viewers, to episode number 137 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where... Mark McEvely, and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. This week, my guest again is Nick Whittaker, who is the Director of Research and Trading at Jessup Wealth Management. Welcome, Nick. Good to be here. Ready? Be back two weeks in a row. I'm excited. Two for two. That's right. I think last week's was great, and I think this week will be the same. Absolutely. So, uh, Nick, before we begin, you want to go over pricing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, these numbers are as of the market closed yesterday. Two fifteen.
2: This data is from Coifan. So the S and P five hundred index for the month is up, or excuse me, is down zero point nine nine percent. For the year, it's down six point one nine percent. The Dow Jones Industrial Average for the month is down zero point four one percent. For the year, is down. 3.71%. 3.71%. The NASDAQ is down for the month 0.7%. For the year, it's down 9.62%. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 for the month is up 2.4%. Up, wow. Is up 2.4% for the month and for the year is down 7.37%. The Vanguard International ETF X the U.S. for the month is up 1.27%. For the year is down 1.16%. The three-month T-bill yield is c- currently sits at 0.419%. The two-year yield is sitting at 1.571%. And the 10-year treasury yield is sitting at 2.048%.
1: We broke that 2% level. We have broken the 2% level. On the 10-year. You know, and just to kind of take into context, at where we're sitting right now and to still have a 2.048% yield on the 10-year is still crazy low to me. Mm -hmm. Very low. Very low. So, I mean, the mere fact it went from, quote-unquote, roughly 1.8% to over barely two in a couple of weeks is still a nothing burger to me personally. Mm-hmm. But that's just my two cents.
2: It seems like it, it, I mean, there was some pretty heavy moves in the yield curve in January, obviously. Sure. But I think big picture, um, it took longer to get there than a lot of the market was expecting. Absolutely. You know, particularly I mean, in the back half of uh,
1: of 21. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. All right, well, I'll dig into big headlines and current events. I'll kick it off, Nick. I mean, obviously, straight, to be straightforward with viewers and listeners, you know, this is what's dominating the market right now. Markets dominated by rumors and speculation regarding geopolitics, i.e. Ukraine and Russia. And the other thing is monetary policy, which is, in essence, how much and when the Federal Reserve is going to make adjustments to interest rates. And this has been the focus since the last podcast over the last week. Oh, yeah. I know there's been economic data. I know there's been some stock earnings on the tail end of Q4, mm-hmm. but really, these are the two things the market's been paying attention to. Okay. Um, Nick, you want to bring up anything else? Yeah. So I actually want to bring up
2: uh, an article, and it's on that same point that you brought up with the Federal Reserve. Okay. Um And for listeners, most people are aware of this because, as you mentioned, it's dominating a lot of the headlines, you know, aside from the the Russia-Ukraine news, Mm -hmm. lots of headlines out there, lots of fear headlines about the Fed and the rate cycle and what's going to happen and inflation so high. And um, so there was a long article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. It was titled, The Fed Missed Inflation, Can Jay Powell Tame It Without Causing a Recession? That was the title of the article. Okay, and and I'm not picking on the the author of this article. It was a very well written article. I'm more bringing up this topic for listeners to give to get your reaction okay. to some of these headline news uh, because I think a lot of the news out there is purposefully heightening anxiety heightening panic drawing a lot of parallels that are fair to draw parallels but they draw the parallel and then they don't finish with the with the thought that we're gonna bring to listeners today which is just kind of like a little extra common sense um okay i'm in let's do this let's be fun so the first quote i'm gonna read from you and then i'm gonna get your reaction is is as follows no fed chairman since paul Volcker in the early nineteen eighties has had to grapple with inflation this high. The risk for Mr. Powell and the nation is that his fight against inflation will cause a new recession, as Mr. Volkers did. Historically, the Fed hasn't been able to push down inflation without a recession. It's on apples to apples in my opinion. That's exactly what I wanted to hear you say. Exactly. So for listeners, you know, comparing comparing today's Fed to the to the Fed of the eighties, comparing today's rate cycle to the rate cycle of the 80s comparing today's inflation to the inflation of the 80s yes i see why the comparisons are made but the news has a tendency to just draw a straight line absolutely without talking through some of the major differences so not apples to apples by by any means um, you know some of the things to think about are and this article points it out You know, officials, here's another line, officials are hoping inflation declines as supply problems ease and demand shift from goods where prices rose sharply last year towards services where inflation has been less extreme. So, you know, they
1: mentioned that, and that's another huge difference there. I mean, I just, I really feel so strongly about this, that once the supply chain starts to normalize, you're going to see prices really come in. Uh, And I'm going to give like some examples here on this. So once you start to have the flow of goods happening again, capitalism will take over. And let's just say you're, you're selling a widget, whatever that example product is, and right now you're, you usually sell your product for $10 an ounce, mm-hmm. okay? But right now you're getting 20 because everyone wants it and there's limited supply. So as that supply starts to increase, all of a sudden your competitor drops it to $19. Yep. It, and, and Nick's getting all the orders. And then all of a sudden, well, I, I, wanna, I wanna get the orders and I'm still making good money. So I'm gonna drop mine to 1850. Mm-hmm. And then you just have that domino effect. And I'm telling you, it will happen.
2: And it, and it goes back to the equilibrium. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So an- another thing they point out in this article is uh, drawing a parallel to the rate cycle of 1994. And that was when Alan Greenspan unexpectedly raised rates 3% in one year. And I believe it went up to around 6%. The Fed funds rate was around 6%. And that did trigger
1: some some adverse reactions in, in the economy. Um, and By the so way, I, when I started in the industry in 99, people were still talking about how tough the market was in 94. All these brokers just whining about how tough mm-hmm. 94 was. Yeah. Yeah. and And...
2: You know, again, I get why the news is drawing some straight lines here. And this is a good article. Go read it. Um, I just want to, I've read this and I thought, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there and I, I have a couple points. You know, All we right, talk about, we, okay. we talk about getting on a soapbox. So I have like four or five points here that I just want to throw out there for listeners and you can, you let's can do react. It. And I've already touched on some of these. So here are my points. Um, comparing inflation to the 80s is fair, but let's not get out of control with our assumptions. Agree. Okay, comparing past rate cycles makes sense, but let's not forget that the Fed's actions and reactions are far more telegraphed today than at any other point in
1: history. All right, I'm gonna come back to that. So keep going. You want me to address that no, now? Address it now. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. So back when I got started in the industry in the late '90s, it was so cryptic. People were speculating how thick the Fed chairman's briefcase was in trying to relate that to what they were going to do with interest rates. That's how cryptic it was. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And now people are trying to take that type of environment. And when the Fed is telegraphing this stuff so much and say it's apples to apples in what planet do you live on? Right. And that's the, that's one
2: of the big points that I want listeners to walk away from when they, when they think about comparing past rate cycles and comparing previous feds. And a lot of that changed with, with Ben Bernanke actually in the 90s kind of pointing out that, hey, maybe we should be a little bit more transparent with our moves and have the markets work with us than try to surprise them and raise rates and catch them off guard. Um, and, And that has changed a lot. So the Fed, you know, today's Fed is not gonna go out and raise rates like crazy and just act with reckless abandon and just say, you know what, we have a target, we're hitting it, we don't really care what happens to the market as long as we get inflation to come down. Like if employment starts to drastically go up and the markets are selling off and there's a, a bunch of geopolitical
1: uncertainty and everything, they're not going to just go crazy. Yeah. Which, it's listen, it's, it's intertwined. Yeah. It really is. Exactly. And not just here in the States, but you know, people might disagree with this statement, but you know, the Fed does consider how it affects the global economy because of mm-hmm. all of our companies are multinationals, it can Absolutely. have a domino effect. Absolutely. So that that's within itself is a could be a controversial statement, but that's that's reality.
2: Absolutely. It yeah. is. Yeah. A lot of the central banks look to look to the Fed as as kind
1: of leader. And there's a lot banks. of currencies around the world pegged to the dollar. I mean there's a Absolutely. lot of stuff going on there.
2: Absolutely. So another point is yes, rates increasing quickly, as a lot of the news is talking about, can and most likely will have adverse uh responses in some areas of the economy but it will also combat inflation and so when you're just thinking on on a personal level and all these stories are saying oh rates are going to get out of control it's like would you rather them would you rather the fed not do anything and let inflation continue to go and get out of get out of control because the price of milk is more so i'd rather the the fed start to raise rates personally just as a personal consumer (laughs) start to normalize a little bit and get inflation under control and like will is there a possibility that you know parts of the economy could react adversely of course Mm -hmm. but you have to do something and that's kind of where we are right now and i think that's not a bad thing i completely agree with what you're saying okay another point that i want to make and this is kind of getting to to my last point and then i'll be off my soapbox this is great keep going Um, you know People, I would like listeners, and I wish that the news would do a better job of putting this in scope. And we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, but if you look at some of these charts, you know, look at an unemployment chart, uh, and and we did it yesterday, you and I were looking at an un- unemployment chart next to the federal funds rate, mm-hmm. our society, our global society, just went through one of the most wild, fast, thrashing economic changes in the history of man. Yes, Um, and, and there's really no debating that when you just look at, look at a chart, um, you know, look at the jobs data we talked about last week. Um, it's going to, and I've said this a lot, but it's going to take a while for the supply chain, for the oil markets, for consumer spending, for home purchasing, for rates, for all of this stuff to settle down. So you look at this fast reaction in the economy, and then you draw these straight lines between the Fed rate cycle and the Fed inflation to the eighties and the nineties and, while it's fair to draw those comparisons, and I'm a huge history guy, I love it. Listeners need to to kind of be aware of that and put it into to some scope, which a lot of times I feel the media fails to do. Again, that's a, a, an opinion.
1: No, <laughs> I, I, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. I mean, I definitely think the sensationalism is very strong right now in the financial news markets, and I think it is very attractive from a viewership standpoint to tout that this could be the early 80s all over again. Right. But I think with a lot of the points that you made, I got more I could make to justify. I mean, mm-hmm. there wasn't quantitative easing. They didn't have these other things. Right. I mean, we haven't even touched on that. And that's I mean, another huge piece of it. It's another right? tool in their toolbox. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's not, I mean, an Allen wrench. It, it's, it's a freaking
3: yeah. drill. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just... It's power a, tools. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: So that's... I wanted to bring that up, provide some scope, uh, get your feedback there are some points out there for people to to realize you know rising rates is not the end of the world um, i think it's
1: actually healthy for the economy exactly because if, if the economy cannot get along without say a two percent like money market rate which would equal around a fed funds of somewhere around say two and a half yeah there's problems right so w- this in my opinion is not a bad thing and people mm. just got to realize that yeah you know, we, we've been babied for several years on interest rates. We've been babied for, for several years, and then even before
2: that, several years longer, <laughs> you know, yeah. when you look so. at it from 2008 till
1: now. Yeah, so. my, my two cents.
2: Okay, so that's everything I have. Thanks for... Uh, no, I
1: love it. Thanks for interning me. <laughs> I love it. See, now. I want to keep going, because things that keep coming <laughs> to my mind is like... Damn! If you're a company that can't afford a two percent more in, in interest cost, then something's really wrong. Like I, I keep going like down these fields.
2: Oh yeah, exactly. We could. But talk then I about think to myself, I'm not
1: investing into companies that are in that position. So right. it's like, all right. Yeah, exactly. You know, we could we could go down that rabbit
2: hole. You know, okay, let's say the the Fed does go up three percent. You know, are there are there areas like I mentioned where there's going to be issues? Yeah, there will be issues. Companies that are existing on debt and are poor companies yeah. and don't make any money. Yeah. Or, you know, extremely risky assets. Uh, there's a few that I can think of that I'm not going to. Yeah, there n-
1: might be in some trouble. Right. Yeah. But that's limited, in my opinion, relative yeah. to the rest of the market.
2: With, with the, the big guys will be just fine, just fine. with 2%. <clears throat> All right. All right. What do you got
1: for us with uh, tweets, articles and research this week? I'm coming hard this week. Love it. All right. So the first thing is, I want to tack head on this whole geopolitical risk and what it historically means for the stock market. I found a really good chart from top-down charts, research note, February 13th. It goes back and has over 20 data points dating back to the early 40s, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm going to name some of these events that have occurred that have rocked the market. You ready? Mm -hmm. Pearl Harbor. Um, North Korea invades South Korea, Mm -hmm. Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy assassination, Six-Day War. I'm going to keep going. Yom Kippur War, Reagan shooting, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, 9-11. I can keep going, but there's 20 of these events, right? And this chart will be in our show notes, and it shows what is the average drawdown. Okay, what's the average drawdown when this event happens And drawdown for listeners and viewers means from the point where the market was to when it bottomed and started to recover, Mm -hmm. okay? The average drawdown was about 4.6%, okay? Not fun, okay? The um, bottom took on average 19.7 days and the recovery took on average 43.2 days. So I think this needs to be taken in stride. I mean, realistically, are there certain sectors of the market that will be affected more if, I think it's an if, by a big if, if Russia does this, okay? Of course. But is it going to affect somebody going to McDonald's and saying, my gosh, Russia just invaded Ukraine. I better not get that Big Mac. I better order off the value meal. Right. I don't see it happening. Super size me, you know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's my next one, okay? defensive investment allocations continue to be a contrarian indicator another good piece from top down charts on february 13th what it shows is it shows a chart going back to 2006 in the amount of buying of a derivative option called a put mm-hmm. and not to get into the weeds but what i'll say is people tend to buy puts when they're concerned about the market and they want a lot of protection to the downside mm-hmm. okay And we are seeing this at virtually decade highs right now. Mm -hmm. And what that says to me is if you're positioned that bearish, you're not over allocated to equities. And you probably if you've sold, you're you're done. There's you, you have your put protection. You've sold. And in essence, I don't see additional massive selling with this type of data. Anything can happen but with this amount of put buying in essence you puked and you're starting to try to feel better mm-hmm. now this is just my two cents my opinion but this is how i interpret this data with my market experience
2: yeah when i see this chart um you know it makes me wish that me personally i just i wasn't
1: already fully invested in the market, right? sure. It'd be yeah, a great I mean,
2: time to put some some cash in.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, will it go down as January twenty fourth for this correction we've had, being the hindsight bottom? Yes or no? But when I see these statistics, we're in the vicinity based upon historical data. Mm-hmm. Okay. The um, the next one I have is a reminder. This is my last one, and this is going to be one of my soapbox items. Love it. Okay. This is a reminder that volatility is a part of investing in stocks. The source of this piece is Shane Brown. He's the head coach at YCharts. And YCharts is a very popular uh, charting and data service. Okay. So um, this is what, uh, but actually before I, I talk about this, uh, I, I need to be very specific to our listeners and viewers that this is not a recommendation for or against the two stock specific examples that are used. Rather, they're illustrations as to what investors need to endure to earn long term rates of return. Given recent market volatility, it is human nature to question downside volatility. This is a reminder why. And so, Mr. Brown included a chart of Apple and Microsoft to very large-sized companies that are a part uh, of the S&P 500 index. Mm -hmm. And these charts go back all the way to before 1985. And what it does is it shows all the drawdowns, peak to bottom at a given point of time before it recovers. Why am I highlighting this? Stocks are not linear. Stocks are not even returns day after day as much as people want to tell me the market is efficient, it's not. That's why the market was down huge on Friday and up huge yesterday. Mm -hmm. The market's not efficient. And the more inefficient it is, the better long term rates of return you're going to earn. But what do you have to sacrifice with that volatility? It's not fun. I'm not trying to sugarcoat it. Okay. So when we look at it, if When people sit there and you see these articles on financial news networks that I've owned XYZ stock for two decades and I'm retiring at 55 and I own an island, okay, let's talk what they had to endure to make that happen, Mm -hmm. okay? So, Apple, early 2000s dot com bust, peak to bottom sell off 82%. How much of the investing public could stomach that? You know, I've
2: went to school for finance, been in finance for getting close on a decade now, and if I lost 82% of all of, you know, everything in the market, I would be very stressed.
1: Oh, um, absolutely. But it is part of it. It's part of it. I mean, look.
2: This is another thing I'll point out just to kind of... Go ahead. ...interrupt your soapbox, (laughs) 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 is... you know, this is the purpose of diversification as well. Absolutely, right? you know, like investors, modern portfolio theory, and and you know why financial professionals kind of can space your different your your risk assets across the board. Is, um, and see, the, so it's not all in one name. Exactly.
1: You know? So to prove this in For a this second, I'll ratio. get there in a second about the diversification aspect. Yeah. The other thing is Microsoft from the peak to bottom. Started selling off in 2000, didn't mm-hmm. fully bottom till 2009. Yeah. Nine year down market for Microsoft. Mm-hmm. Peaked to bottom 74% over that nine year period. Yeah. Okay. But then all of a sudden, you look at the last decade as those companies have matured, as their earnings profiles have been more consistent. Absolutely. The drawdowns, guess what? Have been less and less. They haven't been that severe. Okay. Yeah. The point I want to make here is even in large size, stable companies, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. you still have big drawdowns. So Apple, it's showing here in 2018, drawdown was over 25% peak to bottom. Microsoft, the same in uh, right after COVID hit. And so this is part of investing. Diversification is one thing, but ultimately volatility is going to happen. And anyone who tells you it's not, or they can design a portfolio that doesn't have any downside risk is lying to you if there's equity exposure. Right. Okay. So with that being said, we have to embrace these types of times. We have to change our view and look at it from an opportunity lens rather than this is horrible. This sucks that I have to endure this because if you're more of an active manager you tend to gravitate to things that are more on sale that you like over the long term. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of professional money managers are going to look at the underlying fundamentals of these names, and there's a difference between how a company's actually performing and how the stock is actually doing. And sometimes the stock's doing better than the actual company is because it's, 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 and it's trading off of such a high future expectation. Mm-hmm. Others are discounted because they're wondering if the company can continue to perform at that level. Mm-hmm. And it's up to investors and active managers to figure out which ones to be in. Right. But the point I'm making is volatility is a part of the game. Instead of shunning it, understand that, and then you move on. Exactly. Understand it.
2: Work with your financial planning experts and, mm-hmm. your, and your teams to you know, have your goals, your long-term goals, your time horizons. Yep. You know A lot of people we're talking 10, 20, 30 years. Yep. Um, and, you know, that's why as you, you know, maybe when you're retired and, you know, when you're maybe four or five years from retirement, that's why a lot of times you'll position a little bit differently. Yeah. Maybe you go a little bit less risky,
1: right? Have the conversation. But- if you can't sleep at night, have the conversation with your professional money manager about volatility and risk and Spend some time on that on that on that topic and get mm-hmm. comfortable. Absolutely. And I think that if that's thoroughly explained to you, mm-hmm. um, that you probably are going to feel a lot better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Back to you, Nick. All Alrighty.
2: Um, I've got a couple quick ones here. Um, this first one is uh, from Bespoke Fixed Income Research on two nine. Okay. Um, and it is a chart of. 25 bps rate hikes that are currently priced in the market what does that mean priced in the market it means that this is what the market is expecting um, and it's over the next three months six months and a year okay and it's just a, a quick chart across the globe so you can see you know these rate cycles that we were previously talking about and what the market's expecting and this this kind of adds on to my point about how much more transparent the fed is and and how much different the market is regarding rate cycles than it was you know twenty thirty forty years ago yeah yeah um, you know these charts uh, tend to be pretty accurate and they'll adjust over time, of course, but um, the market expectations are are pretty solid in general, so. Um, you know, you have rates rising across the world, and and as you mentioned, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Do you have anything you want to?
1: No, I I you? just think that you know, if these supply chains start to normalize sooner rather than later, that's going to have a direct effect on how many rate rises actually happen. Yeah, absolutely. My opinion.
2: And, and and there's also you know no no need to panic. You know this this chart. You know, six, six twenty point or twenty five. BIPs, rate hikes in a year. I mean, we're only talking a couple percent, right? Not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world, exactly. Uh, the next one is one that I know you're going to love. Okay. It's on money flow. This is a tweet. I love money flow statistics. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a tweet from Zero Hedge on uh, the 13th. Okay. And uh, I'm going to read the two, two lines here for you. With money flowing into stocks at a record pace, Goldman, Goldman Sachs, Goldman does not see a larger correction taking place. And that was kind of the title of the article. This this tweet was a summary of an article. Gee,
1: listeners, I wonder why you're not reading this in the main news headlines. I wonder why <laughs> it's not being talked about. Yeah.
2: Um, and then the, the other line I'll, I'll read is, is the line that I like. Uh, it's 2021 logged more equity inflows, $913 billion, than the prior 25 years combined. 2022 is on pace to exceed this number by 45%.
1: Excuse me, can you speak into my good ear?
2: <laughs> okay, I'll say it again. 2021 logged more equity inflows, $913 billion, than the prior 25 years combined. 2022 is on pace to exceed this number by 45%. And there's a chart there for listeners as well, so you can kind of see.
1: So, you know, the thing that comes to mind is you, you tend to have different shareholder bases given different times in the market, right? So the people that are the ones selling right now, let's say during January during the correction would be generally termed in the market more weak hands. Okay, they tend that type of investor base tends to shoot first ask questions later. Mm -hmm. The people that are then those shares are being transferred to I consider to be stronger hands because they have a bigger vision and, and they're doing a lot of research on these underlying fundamentals. And I think some of the most violent V-shaped recoveries, and I think of things like April and June of 2020 mm-hmm. when you know COVID was still there, but we were having a little more vision as to how long it was going to be and mm-hmm. the underlying fundamentals weren't as bad as people were expecting. All of a sudden, you kind of have what I would call a seller strike in the market to where you know, those shares have shifted to a lot stronger hands, and they just weren't selling, and so the people that were willing to sell wanted a lot higher prices. And I think that this is what leads to these kind of V-shaped recoveries in the market, is A, people position for further sell-offs with derivatives that they have to unwind, mm-hmm. and the second option is you, in essence, have a seller strike as those people, guys and gals that bought during that correction are like, okay, Nick, you wanna get back in, buddy? All right, I bought it for $10 a yeah. share. I'll sell it to you for 12 Time, Time to drive those I'll sell it up. to you for $12. i am not going to sell for anything less than 12 Yep. And so when I see this, this is not weak hands. You don't have this amount of money come into the market in 21, in so far in 22 with the projection. And I saw a stat last week. It was the largest daily inflow on Thursday, and it was a horrible day in the market. Mm-hmm. That's strong hands. Oh, yeah. And so I would just caution people, as we get stuck in this mindset of fear, as quick as fear is the guiding emotion in the market, mark this day, Jenna, okay? February 16th. In the next three months, we're going to be talking about how we could be talking about how greed is just taking over the market, and it it could definitely be the opposite. And that is how quick... Sentiment in this market changes. Oh, yeah. But this is real data. This mm-hmm. is real data. Yep. Yeah, the,
2: the only other thing I'll add for listeners, just so they're kind of aware, was the second part of the line that, that we read, 2022 is on pace to exceed this number by, by 45%. Um, just because it's on pace to exceed the number by 45, doesn't mean going, it, it doesn't mean especially it's, it's early to, in the year. It's it, exactly. It's like you mentioned in, in three months, we could be talking about something completely different. Yep. So this, this money flow is not linear. Yeah. Right? And the, it and it changes, the reason so. I kind of said
1: three months is I'm seeing other contrarian indicators that I think are at some extreme levels mm-hmm. that makes me think that, you know, statistically speaking, you're going to have a reversion to the mean in some of these things. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right, my
2: last one for you, uh, and I love this one. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated, um, but the chart's great, uh, so I urge listeners to take a look. Okay. This is looking at the, uh, the 10 and the two-year spread. The source is Matt Miskin. Uh, it's, a, it's a tweet he had. Okay. Um, it says, looking at the last eight major rate cycles in the U.S., we find that the equity market always peaked well after the yield curve inverted, 10 months on average, never before, and was then followed by a recession four months later. And will you describe what a yield inversion means? Right, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so the chart will help you kind of understand that, but it's just basically whenever your, your 10-year yield um, minus your two-year yield
1: is below zero, so in essence, you get paid more to own a two-year bond treasury than you do to buy a ten-year. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it just means that um, you know things. The perception is there's more risk short-term than there is long-term. Exactly.
2: Right. Um, and so the chart will kind of help listeners understand that. Um, but I wanted to bring this up, and I thought it was a it was a great chart and uh, and interesting, particularly in in light of all the headlines and the Fed rate cycle and everything, it kind of puts, you know, full circle on this is, you know, the moment they hike, we're going to go into a recession and the economy's going to crash. No, no. Historically speaking, and this is, this is hard data that uh, this comes from Barclays Research and data stream and he says the uh, the charts have the source in there. Um, the yield curve hasn't inverted yet, the 10 and 2 right now. You can see that in the chart. Correct. So we're not even there. Nope. A, B, when it inverts, 10 months on average is when the equity markets peak. So after it inverts... It's not instantaneous. It's not instantaneous. 10 months. It's almost a year, right? So we're not even there. A, Uh, it takes 10 months for equity markets to peak on average. I'm loving this show. B, and then C is... After the equity markets peak, it takes another four months before a recession. So now we're over a year. So that's what I'm talking about why with are the people news. People scared of their shadow, right? Where the news is drawing these straight lines and panic and anxiety and all. You know, they're incentivized to get clicks. I get it. You yep. know, that's their world. But this is a. This is why I wanted to end with this one. Is because it hard kind of hard data. Yeah, exactly. It's it's hard data. It's. Uh, you know, hopefully this can calm. If anyone's feeling anxious, hopefully this can can calm you down. And,
1: I love this. Yeah. This is a great chart. If you have anxiety regarding, you know, the, the, the fear of, you know, recession, hurting the equity markets, good piece to take a peek at. Yep, absolutely. All right. So um, we're going to transition to the financial planning topic of the week. Nick, before... Um, uh, Taylor joins us to discuss that. Anything you want to end with before we go to Taylor?
2: Nope, that's uh, that's everything I had. Thanks for having me again.
1: It's You're a rock fun. star. Thank you, sir. Yep. So next joining us is Taylor Ledbetter. Uh, Taylor joined us last week and was talking about some strategies to have the most efficient withdrawal strategy, um, getting income, living expense money in retirement, um, I uh, take it as a very popular section last week. We got a good amount of, of questions and requests for you to run a lot of uh, hypotheticals and analysis and specific client situations. And so I'm glad that we have you back uh, to discuss uh, capital gains this week. So welcome, Taylor.
3: Yeah, I'm very excited to touch on this topic a little bit more
1: two for two so i'll i'll turn it over to you and um i i think this will be another popular topic i will let you dig in
3: yeah so first i just want to kind of explain what capital gains tax is so it's a tax on the gain of an investment when it is realized or sold and this gain is the selling price minus the purchase price And this tax does not apply to investments that have not been sold. Those are also called unrealized capital gains. And stock shares will not incur any taxes until they're sold, no matter how long the shares are held or how much they increase in value. Correct. And there's two different kinds of capital gains tax rates. The first one is long-term, and as I go over the rates, I'm also going to include the income thresholds as well. I think it'd be
1: very helpful. Mm -hmm.
3: So a long-term capital gain are for assets that are held for more than one year from the date that they were purchased. And those current rates are 0%, 15%, and 20%. And these income thresholds I'm going to mention are for married filing jointly. Yep. Um, normally for singles or married filing separate, it's about half. Okay. So for 0%, the threshold is up to 83350 for the 15% rate it's 83,350 to 517,200 That's a
1: big window, Taylor.
3: Yeah, and then for 20% that goes for anything that's over 517,200.
1: So I think for our listeners, I mean to sit there and say, well, if you're, you know, uh, top of your 1040 is going to show 83,350 or less, and you can sell some assets, long-term assets at a 0% tax rate. That's phenomenal.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like I said in the last podcast, most people do fall into that 0% and they they don't even know it.
1: Especially are a lot mm-hmm. of our retirees. Mm-hmm. That's awesome, Taylor.
3: Yeah. So the second type of capital gains tax rate is short-term. And these are assets that are held and sold one year or less from the date that they were purchased. And that profit is taxed as ordinary income.
1: Big difference. Very big difference. Big difference.
3: So if you can just hold that that asset for a year or more, I think it's worth it. <laughs>
1: I mean, this is why as a practice, you know, when Nick was on earlier, you know, we, we trade all those after tax accounts by hand because you have to, because of the tax side of the equation, right? Right. Because if you're sitting at, you know, eleven months in, in, in two days, probably would make sense to hold that security if we mm-hmm. can get along with it till the end of that period so we get the preferential tax treatment
3: right right zero percent that's a very
1: important so anything less than a year ordinary income yes okay all
3: right so next i want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into understanding the capital gains tax rate okay so i'm going to go over losses and carry forward losses and how that works
1: oh that's a good one okay Mm -hmm.
3: so Taxable capital gains for the year can be reduced by the total capital losses incurred that year. So there is a $3,000 maximum per year on reported net losses that you can use. And those leftover losses can be carried forward to the following tax years as well. Correct. And this next part gets a little wordy, so I'll try to keep it as simplistic as I can. Okay. But a net capital gain means the amount by which your net long-term capital gain for the year is more than your net short-term capital loss for the year. And the term net long-term capital gain means long-term capital gains reduced by long-term capital losses. Include any unused long-term capital losses carried over over from the previous years.
1: Yeah, I mean, so in essence, at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff is going to net out. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think the big part that I still see happening is there's a lot of people that have carryover losses Mm -hmm. that don't tell either they have a professional money manager, they're not informing him or her about that or if they're you know, managing their portfolio on their own, they could artificially raise their cost basis by harvesting gains, eating up those carryover losses. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of strategies there, but a biggie is you can only take up to $3,000 off your taxes. I know,
3: and that's a smaller amount. It is sure. a smaller amount. Mm-hmm.
1: I, I, I know for a fact, um, I still know people that um, panicked during the great financial crisis sold and they're still eating into their carryover losses today.
3: Wow, that's crazy. It's but crazy, but it doesn't surprise me because those can be really high amounts. They could be so very. They
1: could be high numbers, they right? Can
3: carry on for years. That's right. All right. The last thing I want to touch on is called net investment income tax. Okay. And it does go along a little bit with capital gains. Um, I feel like it's not talked about a ton because it does typically apply to higher income thresholds, but a net investment income tax is if you have high income, you may be subject to another tax levy called the net investment income tax. Okay, And this tax imposes an additional 3.8% of taxation on your investment income, including capital gains if your modified adjusted gross income exceeds certain maximums. okay. So this tax is based off of your modified gross income and not your taxable income. Got it. So those threshold amounts are $250,000 if you're married filing joint or a surviving spouse, $200,000 if you're single or head of household, and $125,000 if you're married filing separately.
1: Got it. And I think this tax was originally designed to like go to like Medicaid or Medicare. Mm -hmm. I think it was like designed by Congress to kind of help fund, I think, some social programs, Mm -hmm. if my memory's correct. Yeah. Okay. Mm
3: -hmm. Yep. And I have um, an example to kind of talk through and explain it a little better. No, I think this would be
1: good. Let's go through that.
3: Yeah. So say there's a taxpayer who is a single filer and has $180,000 of wages. That taxpayer also received $90,000 from a passive partnership interest, which is considered net investment income. Now the taxpayer's modified adjusted gross income is $270,000. So the taxpayer's modified adjusted gross income exceeds that threshold of $200,000 for single taxpayers, by 70000 Yep. So in other words, the net investment income for this scenario is 90000
1: Hence, then they end up paying the tax on that portion, right?
3: Yes, so how it works is that net investment income tax is based on the lesser of the taxpayers' modified adjusted gross income. Or the net investment income. Which
1: is ever lower.
3: Yes, the lesser of the two. Okay. So in this case, the taxpayer will owe about $2,600 in taxes because it's based on the $70,000 of his modified adjusted gross income. Makes sense. It's the lesser mm-hmm.
1: of over the 200. <laughs> yeah. 3.8% on that 70000 Yes. Got it.
3: Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to bring that up because, like I said, it's not talked about a it's ton. It's not. Mm-mm, no, and I haven't seen it in a ton of cases, but it is something that does happen.
1: Oh, it's good to know. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see statistically, Taylor, is um, the proportion of after-tax assets for higher net worth people. It, it's 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 going to be there. You know, mm-hmm. when I see you know a quote unquote someone who has a high liquid net worth, let's say north of five million usually the larger portion of their assets is after tax savings, mm-hmm. which would be subject to a lot of these things that you're yes. discussing.
3: Yeah. So it's it's good to bring these things up and just have conversations about them to make sure clients know that these things are there.
1: <laughs> no, I think this is great, Taylor. So, you know, what my takeaway is long term capital gains rates, you know, really do some analysis because there's you're not gonna be paying 20% for most no. people, Mm-mm. right? And so there are ways that you can maximize some withdrawals and take some assets, realize a long-term capital gain, and in some instances, you pay nothing.
3: Yeah. And this also kind of goes back to what we talked about last week, like with the Roth conversion, Mm -hmm. if you're using those taxable assets to pay the taxes on that conversion, you may be in the 0% capital gains tax rate.
1: Oh, this is great! So, as a reminder here for our listeners and viewers, uh, Taylor is our in-house para planner, which is a fancy term for doing all of our financial planning analysis for the office. So, whether it's you know analysis of a Roth conversion, if it's um, analysis on you know the tax side of the equation, you're definitely our go-to at the office. So. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today.
3: Yeah, thank you for having me. It was fun.
1: Did an excellent job. (laughs) So we'll go ahead and sign off, Taylor. Thank you, listeners and viewers, for uh, listening to episode number 137 of the Independent Advisors podcast. We all hope you have a great, wonderful rest of your week and a good weekend, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com there you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at JessupWealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict.